Welcome to another free first hour episode of the Higher Side Chats. I know we want to get into the action, but I have to ask that you help me armor us up a bit for the bumpy road ahead. Because I bring you the first hour of this show without unrelated ad nonsense as a proof of concept. And if you value it, then come over to THC Plus for the $8 a month and hear the full two-hour interviews as they were designed to be and as you would enjoy them most. Go to thehiresidechats.com or just click the link in the show notes to get started and within a minute you'll be plugging in your new Plus Show RSS feed into a hopefully decentralized podcasting 2.0 supported app. Feed the things you want to grow and starve the things that gotta go and we will reach the promised land. Think about that and enjoy the show. President Franklin Delano Roosevelt addressed the nation through a series of radio broadcasts known as the Fireside Chats. His aim was to reassure the common man that our society would recover from its troubled times. Well, we're far from 1930, and I deal with a different kind of fire. For a new era of worldly frustration, we offer a fresh conversation. I'm Greg Carlwood, and these are the Fireside Chats. Here we go, Higher Side Chatters from sunny San Diego. I'm Greg Carlwood, and I can't help but feel humanity is being steered in a darker direction than many people realize. Yes, we've been corralled into a global fear state for well over a year now, separated, locked down, and treated like the ignorant cattle they think we are. But what if COVID and the subsequent shot are not the main objective here, but the means to a much more concerning end? A full-spectrum bio-surveillance state run by a cold, data-hungry technocracy. Many people would say this is too far-fetched, but I would ask them when did the mindset of the capstone cabal really ever change? The history of empire is a series of stories surrounding abuse of power, colonization, and enslavement. But the technology has finally caught up to their lofty dreams, and colonization is no longer about taking over new lands, it's about taking over your body. Slavery no longer looks like we've seen in history books, but it's about a life of servitude to the algorithm, the data collecting sensors, and the gamification of your every action by the technocratic engineers of the coming dystopia. Digital blockchain tokenization, health passports, climate crisis controls, movement management, digital learning, engineered behavior, biosensors, geofencing, AI-controlled everything, and full-spectrum dominance of life as we know it. Because the predator class mindset hasn't changed, only the tools they have access to. And these are all things I've learned from hours and hours of watching the detailed presentations of today's returning guest, Alison McDowell. Alison refers to herself as an independent researcher and a scrappy mom fighting against AI from Philly, who thought she was just working to resist local school closures, but as she pulled that thread, it became something much bigger. You can find most of her work on her blog, wrenchinthegears.com, her new Telegram channel, and her YouTube channel while it lasts. It's been seven months since our last conversation, and I'm anxious to hear how it's all progressing and what new knowledge she's gleaned about this assault on humanity. So let's get into it. Beating back synthetic biology, bio-nano-imperialism, and the neurotech empire, the great Allison McDowell, welcome back to the higher side. Oh, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be back. Yes, I really can't overstate how important I think your work is and how lucky we are to have you here. Thanks so much for doing it. We last talked in December of 2020, and if we think of this all in stages, 2020 was really drumming up fear of the virus, and 2021 has had all the attention on the shots. And 
I know these are just tangents in a much bigger story, but just to break us in here, how is the first half of 2021 gone compared to what you expected? How would you grade the empire at implementing its goals? And how would you grade humanity's reaction to it at this point? That's a good question. You know, I feel like in what we've been experiencing ever since, you know, a year ago, March, that time is really bent <laughs> in unusual ways. And better understanding, I think, what's coming through the trauma, like using trauma to engineer people and using sort of fear and frequencies. So I was much more stressed out the middle of last year of feeling like there wasn't enough time and we had to figure everything out and things were going to unfold. And I think things are continuing to progress in ways that I had imagined last spring, but the time frame is a little bit more stretched out which doesn't mean that I think it's not going in the direction I think it's going, but I think we need to moving forward that they use confusion and uncertainty and fear to their advantage. And so that we have to do our best to both stand in a space of looking clear eyed at what we are seeing and taking in new information and adjusting our analysis, but to try as best as possible to do it from not a place of fear. And I think over the past six months or so, as the medical protocols have rolled out, the powers that be, I think, have been pretty successful in many respects among those who are resisting the mainstream narrative in installing a sense of like division and fear amongst the populace of those who've chosen to follow the mainstream narrative and follow those protocols and the people who are resisting. And I think that that tension is something, again, that advantages the imperial interests and the idea around the spike proteins and the shedding and the distancing and in some ways actually working on the resistance people sort of turning in <laughs> to their worst nightmare of what they had thought of the other people being like that that actually advantages this overall agenda. And, you know, I had mentioned before in my previous show that I had not come into this from the health space. So my learning curve has been pretty significant in trying to get up to speed. You know, I was not aware of the differences between germ theory and terrain theory. Mm -hmm. And even over the course of the year, that's a pretty big thing to have to sort of grapple with and navigate. But what I've increasingly come to realize, especially in some of the dialogues around the narratives within the resistance community, and I recently gave a talk in upstate New York, is that I believe that the goal is to rule us through the field of virology, because once they can manage us through virology, then only those who are sort of the anointed priests of the electron microscope and who are credentialed within the empire get to decide. Yes. And so that's, to me, a very interesting challenge and why I think in some ways I'm leaning much more into the sphere of terrain at this point, because I do believe this is an environmental toxin that is actually happening through not just like glypsophosphate or chemicals, but is actually electromagnetic in nature, is frequency in nature, and that we need to re-understand our conception of environmental toxins. And if we understand it in that way, that it is happening through a weaponized environment, and I think that's going to be the focus of Alana Freeland's book that's going to be coming out. That really reframes our relation 
to one another, both people who have followed the mainstream narrative and those who haven't, and even within those who haven't, the split between germ theory and terrain theory is that if it is a global environmental toxin through frequency, even if you're not fully availing yourselves of these medical protocols, it's a weaponized environment. And so we actually have to unite to preserve natural life itself, Mm -hmm. which is where I've landed at the moment. And (laughs) not to say that I'm absolute or that my analysis will not continue to evolve with new information, but what has surfaced over the last few weeks publicly and what had actually been conveyed as early as early June um, around La Quinta Columna in Spain and their microscopy analysis around the graphene is now I'm looking at it much more in terms of nanoelectronics. And this is a an area that is very new for me, but I've been collaborating and gaining input. Like a lot of the work that I share here is in collaboration with other researchers. I have a friend who blogs a piece of mindful, who blogs under Steffers. That is their banner. Also Sophia Smallstorm, Alana Freeland. So I'm swimming in the mix of a lot of different inputs from people who are collaborating from a good place to try to situate what is actually unfolding, if that makes sense. So my goal is not a call for unity, just of unity, but to say, if we understand this as a frequency weapon that is being enacted on the earth broadly and on all natural living things on the earth, then that's a different strategy. And the tax we take in addressing it differ than if we're going to sort of focus on a bioweapon or gain of function or spike proteins or these other things. It's a fundamentally different tack. Mm-hmm. And so that's sort of where I'm at now. Well said. Yes, I absolutely took the bioterrain journey, sounds like, in parallel to you. And it really just hit me the importance of getting this stuff right. I've had the show for 10 years, but this is much higher stakes than talking about aliens or even some past event like 9-11, because this is happening right now. And it's going to be, it seems like the next 10 years for this plan to really roll out. So I definitely want to get it right. And that means a crash course in virology and comparing it to bioterrain theory. And I know you did a event called the Viral Panopticon with Dr. Tom Cowan, who I have recommended people check out a lot around here. And Dr. Andrew Kaufman, who I interviewed previously, and they both make a a really good case for their perspectives. But then I also have had guests who talk about the gain of function research. If you follow the money and the players involved, there's stuff there. And I guess I kind of go back and forth because now they're talking about gain of function and lab leaks on the nightly news. So I'm less inclined to lean that way than I even might have been six months ago. And maybe it is a mix of both. And maybe that's not even necessarily the most important question. It's kind of maybe polarizing and and a distraction fight that people are having. But just like you said, I wrote down this quote from that event where you say, virology was a very tactical and strategic choice to coerce global systems change tied to this fourth industrial revolution, that virology as a field was chosen with intention to get us onboarded to perpetual pandemics and biosurveillance. And that is really the crux of the issue that I think people should focus on. It's very well said. And I guess people have a pretty good understanding of bioterrain theory. But another aspect that you brought up is the microscopes. And I thought that was really the most interesting thing Dr. Kaufman had to say when I interviewed him, because 
it's a closed off field. Mm -hmm. You know, one of your slides called it the microscope club and that an electron <laughs> microscope costs 50 to $200,000 and you have to be officially certified, which is thousands more. And without access to the tools, it's hard to challenge the field. But just the way that the way the whole thing is structured makes me pretty suspicious when you learn about it, right? Well, very much. I mean, the thing that I've been diving into for the past couple of weeks is, you know, I always knew early on in looking at the fourth industrial revolution, looking at what the World Economic Forum was saying, that synthetic biology was a key factor. And, you know, I've mentioned like Celeste Solem had been talking about graphene and hydrogels last fall, but I didn't fully have a mental construct to plug that in. It was sort of floating out as a placeholder in there as things I needed to understand better, but I didn't have enough of a depth of knowledge to really understand, situate it better. And so now with looking into graphene as a significant material and whether or not you, certainly we need additional research from additional parties on the nature of what's in vials and other medical instrumentation to determine and reconfirm that. And again, that's the challenge is who is willing to do that work, right? Because if you're credentialed within the system, how many people are willing to risk their careers, how many people are able to get access to the microscopes, it's very challenging. So as I've spent more time understanding the last few weeks, the use of the nanotechnologies, the biotech systems, the engineering of life itself as a programmable system. And of course, all of this is framed in a benevolent way. But if anyone, and I'm sure people on your show have talked about him before, James Giordano, who's the quote unquote bioethicist at Georgetown and who speaks very directly about neuroweapons and the battle for the mind. Once you understand that being able to control especially brain function, which is a particular concern and crossing the blood-brain barrier and mapping the neurons of the mind and the technologies that are in place to both map and influence how neurons act as almost like machines and switches to turn things on and off, which is sort of a central feature of the presentation that I've recently given, it's very weighty to live with that because on the one hand, most of the papers present this in a clinical setting. And at this point, they talk about the trials being on rats and mice. Although I have been in touch with people who've reached out to me who are experiencing electronic cyber torture. And it seems like it's very likely that those studies in a non-consensual way have expanded beyond just simply a lab and mouse trials. Mm -hmm. So once you understand these tools are in place and have been studied, including like optogenetics for at least 15 years, then that's a whole new bailiwick once we start to understand synthetic biology within the context of cybernetics. And I will say it was a couple of weeks ago, I just woke up at like 4.30 in the morning saying, like with this idea that I had to go back and look at the Macy conferences again, hmm. you know, and the Macy conferences were in, I think the mid 1950s, it was a series, but it was about cybernetics and the cybernetic systems wasn't just computing, but it was specifically computing to understand the operations of the mind. And so this quest to get into the mind 
and to manipulate, to map, to control the mental function. And, and we know that there have been very, you know, even high level interventions in the 1960s. And it's hard to even imagine how far things have gone that are not, you know, openly available on YouTube. That once you get to the point of mapping and sort of jailbreaking the mental function, it's heavy. <laughs> Yesterday, I just found a paper about synthetic programming of hallucinations. It was a dissertation last year by someone who was getting their PhD at MIT, and they discussed programming synthetic hallucinations, mm. that essentially it would be augmented reality, but instead of using your eyes, they would project it directly onto your brain, and so wow. that you would experience visual and other kinds of hallucinations. And that's coming out of the war machine, you know? Right, right. And that's really interesting because I've heard several astrologers actually talking about the next couple of years. And based on the position of the planets and the certain energies, they framed it as a era where you won't be able to trust your own eyes and ears any more than you could previously. Like the mainstream narrative will be even more sophisticated at being manipulative. And that ties right in there to what you're saying. I mean, that is the road they're trying to pave. And let's talk a little bit more about graphene because I hadn't really heard of this until your presentation. And terrain theory is relevant because this is how they're altering the terrain. This graphene is a huge part of your work. It seems to be the red carpet with which the biosurveillance state is being rolled out on. You've said you expect it to be as ubiquitous in our culture as plastics are now. And I've seen debate over if graphene is in the COVID shot. Is it or is it not? But you presented this article from the scientific journal Nanoscale from 2016 that says, Functionalized graphene oxide serves as a novel vaccine nanoadjuvant for robust stimulation of cellular immunity. And it goes on to say, too much exposure may induce cytotoxicity and lung disease. Sounds like the symptoms of COVID itself, really. But it's certainly been presented as a substance in some vaccines, but it is a lot more than that, right? I mean, if it's going to be as ubiquitous as plastic, it's going to be everywhere. Yeah, and I think it's already in many things. So essentially, it's important to understand that graphene is the first two-dimensional material. And my assessment in some ways, and I, I would be interested if you have any insights from your other guests, but that what is underway in this transformation, and it links back in many respects to my previous work around digital identity and ledger systems and blockchain and tracking behaviors, right? Locking in these ledgers that create digital twins is that this metaverse that is being designed in this gamified scenario, you know, the link of the entertainment industry and the defense industry and the, you know, the video gaming industry of creating a virtual reality that exists in two dimensions, which is much more easy to manage and navigate from a military standpoint when you understand all of this tech is military in origin. So my sense is that one of the things on blockchain, there's a, a woman named Melanie Swan has done a lot of work on transhumanism. And actually MIT has done considerable work for over 20 years with their goal of uploading consciousness. And they define it as a substrate independent mind. Hmm. And Melanie Swan speaks of transhumanism and blockchain as essentially 
you're digitally twinning brains and setting up brains as decentralized autonomous organizations. And so if you imagine your digital twin in your mind, and this is something that's also being worked on by Nippon Telegraph and Telephone, they're actually imagining digital twins where it's not only that your behavior in the real world affects your digital twin in the virtual world, but at some future point, your digital twin in the virtual world could go off and do something independent of you, and then it would be reflected back in your material self, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which is crazy. Like, So there's this portal going on. And so my sense around the graphene and the two dimensions is if the, the forces that be, right, however we want to define those, I call them like a profane force, as I've mentioned, John Trudell is an influence on me, a predator energy. There's some sort of supreme predator system out there, you know, of domination, Yes. that there's an intention that is backed by military force and financial force and technological force to reduce life itself, you know, the 3D, 4D, 5D realm of those of us as we now experience to get into a collapsed two-dimensional system. And so the use of the graphene is a way of almost capturing and mirroring our life process into the metaverse. Mm. And a lot of that is through electronic signaling. And graphene is very electroconductive. It's very strong. It's very flexible. It's just like one atom thick. And they equate it to diamonds. Essentially, they say it's the wonder material for everything. And they even talk about using it to coat neurons and to map them and to essentially almost like that they could read your thoughts, which is something that the World Economic Forum has been very clear about their intention, that your thoughts will no longer be your own. And we will all be subsumed within this internet of bio nano things. And our physicality of where our body ends and where our environment begins, this ubiquitous sensing environment of electromagnetics begins, we'll start to all blur out. <laughs> and we'll just be like molecules floating around. You know, that's the thing about nanotechnology. I say there's a lot of room at the bottom that we're mostly not here. <laughs> you know, we're mostly empty space. And so I think that's the thing for graphene for me is that it's not only going to be in biosensors and that is central to the internet of bodies. And, you know, where I was six months ago was really focused on wearable technology, right? Smart shoes, smart shirts, brainwave headbands, Fitbits, all of these things within the context of human capital finance. But now it feels like they're not just learning you from the outside in, they're going to learn you from the inside out, even down to the level of your own the chemistry of how your mind functions and the frequencies of how your mind functions. So it's both ends towards the middle. And the other piece about this with the hydrogel is that graphene is used with hydrogel. It's used to model soft tissue in people, like for tissue repair, but they're also using graphene hydrogel in soft robotics. And so you'll hear in the space, they'll talk about this woman, I think it's Amy Cruz, who's with platypus AI, and she was formerly out of DARPA, this idea of a centaur, like human computer collaboration, and that there's sort of a continuum of centaurs of humanized robots and roboticized people, you know, and that there will just be this sort of gray area on the continuum. And so if you imagine that graphene is being put into roboticized people, but then it's also being used in the soft robotics to make them more human-like and to operate in a humanized environment that it's both ends of the spectrum. Right. Man, I wish I could say I've talked to a lot of people that are on this page, but I really haven't. I mean, you are on the cutting edge of this stuff. I know it's hard to articulate sometimes because the concepts are barely even 
developed. So I will say Amazing Polly actually did have a really helpful interview about the soft robotics. So I would recommend, I don't know the exact title, but Amazing Polly did. I just want to give credit because that was actually very helpful for me as well. And talking about the magnetosphere and tracking thought waves and brain waves. But centrally, I think the frequency and the molecules at the nano level are where the focus needs to be. At this point, I think we need to start to move away from all of the limitations of the COVID narrative and to move into these new areas of microelectronics. Yes, that's exactly what I was going to say is so many people still seem focused on what is COVID and how's the shot going? And they're really not getting this far down the road, except Sophia Smallstorm, who you mentioned, you know, friend of mine, she is a fairly regular guest here. She's on this page for sure. She's very much so. Yes, she's very has done a lot of work on biocomputing as well. So, yeah. Yeah. And this graphing stuff, if people are skeptical or unfamiliar, just Google it and then click on the shopping tab and you will be presented with so many items, graphene pillows, graphene powder, graphene spray for your car tires, all kinds of strange stuff. It's it's out there. Uh, the one that I thought was interesting was a graphene lined self-heating smart hoodie for all you people who need that in your life. Uh, but it is coming. Well, and it's going to be framed also within the climate because we know that the fourth industrial revolution is working both. It's all about ubiquitous sensing. And that links to what I've talked about in the past about the global human bond markets and social impact finance, which are about managing people and managing the environment. But because it is central in conductivity, it's going to be used for the sensor-based technology. It's also being used for batteries and energy efficiency. And so it's the wonder material narrative that is being sold is going to interface with the smart cities. And there's a gentleman, I believe his name is James Tour, T-O-U-R, who operates out of Rice University. And people who've been following the narrative over the past year may be familiar with quantum dot tattoos. And that was work that moved from MIT to Rice. But Rice University has their own special graphene lab where they're working on using lasers and that essentially anything that is carbon, they can use a directed laser on and then turn it into graphene. And so, Mm. and it's conductive. And so what they're saying is they can put graphene tattoos and this is not quantum dot, this is like a burned etching, but it's not actually burned. It's just they've materially changed the construct into graphene on boxes for tracking, because this is central to supply chain tracking. But we have to understand that life itself, including our human lives, are part of the supply chain now. But putting it on food items, on potatoes, on coconuts, everything becomes a trackable item in this larger planetary computer. But the planetary computer is being run by the predator force. (laughs) Yes, yes. And another little quote I had written down here was in relation to graphene and all these products, and maybe it isn't the vaccine, maybe it isn't. When they say it is an adjuvant, I've heard that when you list the ingredients, sometimes the adjuvants, the preservatives, the add-ons, aren't really kind of in that ingredient list. So I could see why maybe some people get confused. There seems to be enough of it out there, whether it's in the shot or not. But you had said they're playing with dosage and they're not going for this goal of mass death, but mass colonization And they're kind of throwing it all into our society to see how much 
of it we can take, how much exposure we can handle. And they're trying to dial it in uh, to the degree that, you know, it's maximally beneficial for them. I think that's a great point. Yeah. And I, I want to say, actually, that's sort of Steffer's assessment that helped inform that analysis. But concurrent with the work that I was looking into in the nano electronic space, I have a friend, his name is Joseph Gonzalez, and he's a career coding professional. He's worked in AI and blockchain and video game design. He's very knowledgeable. He's a combat veteran and knows a lot about signals intelligence and electrical engineering. He's a very brilliant thinker. So what he had actually represented when I was looking into some of this, that there were some documents from the Air Force around information warfare. And essentially, if you understand that the universe is made up of information, there's a group of people, they put out a contest called Evolution 2.0. And it's this person, Perry Marshall, who's a very influential business consultant in coordination also with George Church, who's out of Harvard Medical School and part of a lot of the genomic, gene engineering, CRISPR, Ancestry.com, synthetic bio space. And they've got this contest where they are offering up $10 million for anyone who can figure out this problem around communication theory. And what Joseph has described, as he has described it to me, is at the base level, you've got a transmitter and a receiver, and there's communication that travels between both of them. But both sides have to understand what that communication is. And, you know, this is something that Sophia has talked about, like even DNA is a communication system, like coding and recoding. And so there's systems of communication, whether that's, that can be an alphabet, that can be spoken word, that can be anything that the two parties have agreed upon. But what they haven't figured out is, and they can manipulate that, right? They can start to break these codes that are known. But the idea that what happened, how did the first communication start? Because if you've only got two parties, they can't communicate until they have a mode of communication. And yet they can never get that. And that what is above that, the implication is there is a third party. There is an all-powerful force that enabled the first communications, and that is God. Mm -hmm. And so what these very influential people are doing now is that they are revisiting the idea of Darwinian evolution. And I think looking more towards this gentleman, Jean-Baptiste Lamarck from the 18th century, who is looking at intelligent design. And so they are trying to essentially through this contest, as it appears, to break the code of life to be able to figure out where that third party came into the equation and to dislodge like a coup of God, essentially, mm. is what is the implication of this solving this communication puzzle, solving the idea of communication of life itself, of genetic sequencing outside of the way we've been traditionally presented, surfacing other ideas, and then what happens once that takes place. And so my thought process, which seems consistent with Steffer's idea around like not a mass die-off, but a mass management of populace is chronically ill, maybe neurologically injured, is that they need as much data as possible to break that code. Mm -hmm. The idea of a planetary computer the idea of this barcode of life. So Microsoft is advancing the planetary computer under the climate change campaign. And then there's another group of people who are doing every single living thing needs to be barcoded. 
a lot of this is embedded in bioinformatics research that you know goes back to Salt Lake City, among other places, Ancestry.com. Getting all of that material, they need to like break it through force of machine learning. And so if you imagine once you start looking into nanoelectronics and optogenetics and using magnetism to control and map neurons, because for this, what MIT has said, what their goal for a substrate independent mind, which could be the hive mind, right? The blockchain, the ultimate blockchain mind is that they need neural mapping. They need the morphology of the neurons. They need massive, massive amounts of data. And so as I imagine it, now that they've got this technology to get the data that they want to accomplish this end at a massive scale, that's what they're going to pursue, but they need to not kill everybody first. Right, right. <laughs> they need to actually get it in people so that they can pull the data out of them. And I think in certain respects, I've had exchanges with people who, again, have been targets of remote electronic torture, is that they're test beds for how to pull this data out, both how to manipulate them, but pulling the data out. And that several people have told me at night when they're about to sleep is some of the most problematic times for the frequencies. And that if you imagine the etheric body, that if you're trying to jailbreak consciousness and the soul, that this transition between you know, your consciousness and your material body going into a different state that that is information they want as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so they want to get into your mind. The cyberneticists want to get into your mind, the Macy Conference people, and they haven't had a way to do it. And I think they believe that perhaps graphene is that system, but they have to get it in in a way that works and can be done at scale. And so I think clearly reproduction management is a huge issue, but each life in this system as a data generator has value to them. Right. In this scenario. And I'm not saying everybody has to believe this scenario or I have the ultimate, but this is how I think about it. If that is their goal, it's not about money. It's not about power. It's actually about breaking this code and becoming God, which is essentially like the universe's empire of being the commander of the universal empire, which seems kind of consistent for a predator energy scenario. They need us around for a while anyway. Right, right. I mean... I'm with you on that page because I do have friends and family. They know what I do. And they're like, well, why would they just want to kill us all if they're making so much money off of us? And I'm like, well, they do hate us, but, you know, <laughs> they do still want their money. But that's always been the argument to me with things like uh, the education system and dumbing us down and crafting it the way they did. It really was an insurance policy to keep their own position of power and drive a chasm between the average person and them so that the average person can't even get the education that could even possibly dethrone them from their higher level position. And this is really just a, a technological application of that same kind of mindset of like, keep them at bay, keep them controlled and keep extracting that energy and that money. And it's just like a new layer because they now have the technical ability. And you referred to I guess a couple of people that would be considered targeted individuals, as they say. And I get those kind of emails too. Every so often someone's like, Hey, I love your show. This, 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 and this are happening to me. I need help. And I'm like, well, I, I really don't know how to help you. I just interview people and I hope that you can get some help, but I'm starting to believe just like you say that there are people out there. It's hard to distinguish who's telling you the truth. I mean, these are just anonymous people online, 
But if they have these technologies, they're probably testing them somewhere because they have a long history of testing things on vulnerable people, whether it's in uh, the old psychiatric wards or prisons. They take anyone who doesn't really have a, a voice and they, you know, target them for things that they don't have any consent to. And I could see some kind of field testing of this very stuff you're talking about going on. And I guess you're hearing more and more people report that to you. Right. Well, you know, and I would say so not that I have a whole lot. Of, I mean, I certainly know that most of the stuff that is happening is happening through United Nations. So I'm not saying this because I believe that they will in any way seek justice for these individuals. But even they were sort of compelled to last year start looking into like human rights abuses and torture and acknowledging cyber torture. Mm. So, you know, those weapons and even I was looking back at the time, Dennis Kucinich in 2001, I found proposed legislation that did not pass. He reintroduced it again, but it was about space weapons you know, psychotronic weapons, electronic frequency weapons, chemtrails, all of these things were listed in his proposed amendment for keeping space a peaceful place or what have you. So, you know, in 2001, they were already listing all of these kinds of weapons that could be used. And why would you do that if they didn't exist or you didn't anticipate that they would exist? I mean, if you understand MK Ultra. I mean, the other thing is people, there's a sense of collaboration in this, in that we all have different information to share. So I gave a presentation in Tucson last month, and the focus was on gamification and smart environments and human capital finance. And so one of the individuals who had talked to me, because part of it is electronic torture, but the other part is harassment. And actually, if you start to understand the systems that are in place, it helps people understand what's happening to them. So we were speculating that maybe that there were gig economies set up in harassment, right? That there are networks that could then target people through the gamification, that people may be participating in these platforms, not realizing that it's not a game, mm. <laughs> that the person being targeted, that it is not LARPing, right? And so this aspect of the gaming, and then also within the understanding of synthetic biology and biotech is that they are weaponizing bacteria and fungi and archaea. I don't know what archaea are, <laughs> but for all of these things, and a lot of people have talked about actually having like fungal elements, right? They're harnessing the biological imperatives of non-human organisms and implanting them into people for uses around electronics and other mechanisms. So hmm. to me, you don't know, right? Like we don't know one another, but I think you weigh the information and then you weigh it against what you know. Well, yes, the UN is looking into this. Yes, people know that such weapon exists. Yes, we know the history of empire and how these things work. So to me, I don't ever say I have the absolute answer, but I think there are things that help me think about the larger construct. And I think particularly if you look at the emphasis that is coming around sleep aids, mm. uh, apps around sleep, smart beds. I've seen apps for babies in sleep, baby monitors. Oh, yeah. If you start to imagine frequency weapons, remotely weaponized frequencies, and not simply just to cause harm, but to extract data. And if you understand that the goal may be to extract data for machine learning towards 
accessing pieces of the puzzle that this predator energy wants to accomplish an end. Mm -hmm. And that they probably have like a whole lot of Fitbit data, (laughs) like (laughs) step count data, you know, all the crazy people who are wearing, like that's probably kind of boring at this point, but they want these other bits. And that's why I've talked a lot when I reflect on my work in the education technology space that the emphasis that they're doing on emotional, social, emotional learning on children, the ties to apps, to behavioral compliance apps in classrooms, to brainwave headbands, to different things. Like they want that data. They really want emotional data as well. They want sleep data. They want every bit. And if you look at Google had a thought experiment, like foresight video called the selfish ledger in 2016. And I mapped out all of the concepts in that. But One of the key elements, and that's where I learned about Lamarck. So, you know, if Google Alphabet is positing like, hey, we should go back and look at intelligent design and Jean-Baptiste Lamarck and how it all relates to sustainability in the United Nations, then we should probably pay attention because they tell us and then we should just listen and, and look into it for ourselves. But they actually posited this future of filling in your digital twin and that this AI consciousness would see like, oh, there's a bit of data that's missing. How can I look at your profile and design an app or a system that will fill in that missing piece. And then I can 3D print it and then I can price it so that you'll buy it and then you'll have it in your hands and then I'll get that bit that I want and then repeat, rinse and repeat. And that's what Google has already said. And once you see their hands in blockchain healthcare and smart cities and Nest, and then knowing how now, even within Amazon, all of the edge computing systems are starting to work together. This idea of smart, ubiquitous sensing environments and at the nanoscale level, we're just a bunch of molecules. Like in some respects, I guess we are already merged with our environment, but the way our consciousness is, we still imagine that we have a corporeal self. But there are people out there, I believe, with very deep military knowledge, and I'm going to be doing a discussion, I don't know when this is going to air, on Saturday about MITRE Corporation and the history of MITRE and the Cold War and the weaponization of radar systems. (laughs) So there are people who know they've been talking programmable matter since the early 1990s and we're it. Right, right, man. And this is kind of right along the lines of something that really freaked me out when you were talking about the spatial web in one of your presentations. And for people who don't know, Gabriel René wrote the book, The Spatial Web, and in it, he defines it as saying, the spatial web weaves together all of the digital and physical strands of our future world into the fabric of a new universe where next-gen computing technologies generate a unified reality, where our digital and physical lives become one. So this is the plan. This is not hypothetical paranoia. And to quote-unquote, incentivize people to adopt it, they're aiming to make the physical body uncomfortable and maybe the environment uncomfortable for the physical body. They've already got us looking at nature as scary and the human body as vulnerable. If they cause people to be perpetually ill or uncomfortable, it will push us into this spatial web. And you also make a great point that With this whole asymptomatic spread narrative, now we don't even know if we're healthy. We must consult an expert who will deliver their decree to us if we're healthy. We don't even have the ability to know ourselves anymore. We're so confused, but I'm sure this is what is being field tested with some of these targeted individuals. If they can't get us with the carrot and just enticing us with 
all the new cool VR stuff, then I guess we get the stick. But how do you see them making life more uncomfortable and this spatial web more attractive over the next maybe five or 10 years? Well, I mean, we can see the, you know, under lockdown, you know, increasingly, and this is something I've tried to convey, you know, because as someone who comes from more of a a formerly left-leaning perspective with conservatives and this idea of borders and nationalism, is that for this predator energy, this is a global system. And the idea of national borders that we're going to somehow, like those don't exist in the metaverse. (laughs) This idea of geofencing is going to be much more important so that they can make borders and restrict your mobility at will in real time. And increasingly, that's going to be automated and linked to your biosensors. So if you have these internal biosensors that are nanoelectronics that you can't just remove, it could send a signal saying, oh, okay, so you're confined to X amount of distance, right? Your mobility is either just to stay inside or you have to stay in your neighborhood or your city, what have you, and that that would all start to become automated. So I think our physical existence is going to be increasingly constrained. And in this space, I just want to emphasize, like, I think it's not just about the passports and injections that it literally is weaponizing the environment. So there may be a continuum of people in terms of their direct impact, but I think in the end, there's not any way to totally remove oneself from it. I mean, even if you feel like you're going to remove yourself to the countryside, if you understand this as a weaponized atmospheric frequency weapon that's linked to geoengineering and nanotechnology in the rain and the soil, you're not going to be able to be out there and not breathe the air. Right, right. So we have to acknowledge that. And that's why for me, it feels like a spiritual engagement. So physically, we will be limited. I think clearly we've been seeing people who have had negative health impacts, you know, either as a result of injections or... Also, like even whatever has presented as COVID, right? Like we don't know what kind of targeting has been happening in advance. These long haulers are the long haulers, people who are already subjected to different kinds of nanotechnology implementations. But a lot of it is neurological, right? And so I actually know someone in the past who was, you know, made a very astute observation. And this was more around Elon Musk's Neuralink, but I think the Neuralink is sort of a red herring to distract you to say, well, oh, if you don't go get a surgery to put these things threaded in your brain, you're okay. Really, MITRE has been doing research with Charles Lieber at Harvard, who was, you know, surfaced early on in this for his involvement in China, but it's really Harvard, you know, that's doing this. And they're doing non-surgical nano neural implants, neural interlaces with these nanotechnologies. So I think Neuralink is meant to distract you and make you shocked, but make you think that you're going to be out of it. If you understand it as a nanotech, nanoelectronic self-assembly, because that's what they're working on at Rice with the teslapheresis is self-assembling carbon nanotubes out of graphene. Like there's no way that you can necessarily always know if you've been exposed to these systems or not. So within the neurological illnesses that are being caused within the tremors and the seizures that people are having, so now there's going to be a whole nother, it's going to create a very convenient test bed to further interrogate these nanotechnology neuromodulation programs and maybe even advance it in a way that they can get, you know, approvals for experimentation or states of exception to deal with all of the people who are having these problems. Mm-hmm. Man, lots to think about there, but I did have in my notes this 
quote you had on the subject of the off-grid escape, you've said, look, if you want to live off the grid, then go for it. But don't do it because you're running from this or think you can escape it. And that is just such a scary thought because I've definitely had this framework in my head that this is going to be a big field experiment that surrounds smart cities. And eventually I could just move further out and further out and that'll be how I deal with it. And it doesn't seem to be the case because this is atmospheric. And I, I guess help people get a better concept of what that really means. Are they just going to be using this geofencing and this network of satellites to induce frequencies that make the physical body uncomfortable? Is that kind of what you're thinking? Well, I mean, I would love for more people to be doing this research. And and I will say <laughs> on the, one, the, the other hand, like, because, you know, I will be the first to admit, I'm not the expert in all of this. Unfortunately, it feels like once you're the expert, then you work in such a narrow way that you never imagine the dual use side of these things. Mm -hmm. So they mostly talk about it in a clinical setting. I think it seems clear that it is expanded beyond a clinical setting. And graphene in particular, if you do, you could almost put in any word and graphene and something is going to come up. Yeah. You know, like I hadn't thought about looking at the shopping tab, but this idea of nanoelectronics and carbon nanotubes, especially within, you'll, I'm sure the narrative will start to be around sustainability and smartness and tracking and all of the sensor data will be feeding into these global financial markets. I don't know how all the frequencies will work. Like, I don't know if they're custom tailoring frequencies. You know, I think Sophia Smallstorm has done a lot of looking into about getting like DNA coding and targeting people in that way. The other piece I will add is that I've been looking into LED lighting and silicon carbide fabrication because when I went to upstate New York, I always like to sort of situate what's going on where I'm at. And they were just outside of Rome, New York, getting like the world's largest silicon carbide manufacturing plant. And that focus was on LEDs. And so these LEDs, the company, I think it's called Cree, C-R-E-E, -E, and they're based in Durham. And this is their biggest factory. But the LED lights were not just street lights, but they were being used in these clinical settings tied to optogenetics, tied using light frequency to change cellular function. And, you know, as my friend Joseph has said, it's all a matter of the waveform, like light and sound, you know, are these waves. And so I've been looking at smart streetlights for four or five years and thinking, oh, okay, so this is where they're going to hang their surveillance technology and all of these things. But I hadn't really thought about them as activating cellular Beyond that, just, oh, it's harmful, but that it actually was a potentially a programming interface. Philadelphia has been getting new skyscrapers with all sorts of LED lighting, which is really harsh and unpleasant lighting, blue lighting and red lighting. And those are lights that are used for the optogenetics. And I have to say, my friend Lisa had this really, and a few people had this really interesting observation about the giants that are being proposed. You know, there's this idea that they're going to create these 10-story giants in 21 cities around the world and that you're going to project, they're going to embody different figures like athletic figures and that you can have a selfie and that you can project your face onto these giants. <laughs> there's a lot of people looking at the revelations and different things, but that like if there's frequency things coming out almost like idol worship, but what if mm. these 
art structures are then imbued with lighting or frequency modulation that then gathers lots of people to them. And, you know, we were ironically talking about like the men in black, right? The blue light, you know, are they going to zap your (laughs) memories out? And a lot of the stuff you hear in mass entertainment and, you know, there's a part of me that just wants to think they're all blowing smoke, that half of these peer reviewed papers are bogus and none of this is true. But at the same time, we're living in such extreme times. Like, it's not like the world is totally normal and we're making up some sort of fringy things on the side. It seems like there's some big existential thing that is happening. And so I, I think we would do well to pay attention to these different signs. Yeah. So that's how I'm <laughs> feeling about LEDs right now. I mean, I will say in Philadelphia, too, just one other thing is so, you know, we're a, you know, a very large city, a lot of poverty at the center, like, of the heroin epidemic and a lot of poverty in Kensington and Frankfurt, the L, the elevated subway runs through it. These are some of the poorest areas of the city. And yet they have new LED lights under like every 50 feet that were installed under the L in the past year. Wow. That's curious. (laughs) We mentioned how you can't just escape this by going off grid. And I wanted to highlight something you said in one of those presentations, right along the lines of what you just said, but, but the quote is, I'm warning of frequency weapons that are coming through a poison environment at an atmospheric level. It's not about how we can escape for ourselves or our families or our local communities, but this is an assault on natural life by empire, period. And we have to come at this from a place of global solidarity. And that is well said, but it scares me, Allison. I can't even get five (laughs) of my closest friends to take these concerns seriously. Despite the checkered history, people trust this system. How can we ever hope to move more people towards global solidarity? I think you just have to tell the better story. It's about controlling the narrative. Yeah. If you understand nanotechnology, the power of nanotechnology is that it's so small. It has a disproportionate impact. Like that's why it can be so toxic because at that scale, even tiny scales matter. I don't know if I'm fully articulating it, but like if you look into the research, that's why it's so potent is at that small level, none of the rules apply and it's incredibly powerful, even though it's incredibly small and actually invisible. Mm. (laughs) So I think if we imagine the resistance and if we can we situate it from a place of spirit and a place of non-judgmental spirit, knowing that people come to their sacred place in a lot of different ways and that we should be respectful of as long as people aren't hurting other people, those different positionings, that it doesn't take everybody. Right. It doesn't take everybody. And that what we should do is create a movement that people want to be a part of, which is why I've adopted sort of this dandelion motif, is that the things I'm talking about aren't related to COVID, because if we stay in their narrative, we'll never get beyond it. And so how do you create space for people to come together to say, you know what, to let people back in, right? To let people, if people have had an injection, I'm not beyond, like, if you understand most people believe in a forgiving God, that there's not some other way out, that we do not know all the things. We absolutely do not know all the things. And a lot of the things they're telling us may be totally wrong, right? Like, we do not have all the information. Some of the information may be wrong. All we can be aware of is being in the world and to try to be act from a place of care and justice, even though it's hard and we have our cranky days. Mm -hmm. And to know that it's about the whole world and all of nature, 
Like it's not us against China. You know, everybody has their place. And to me, that's a unifying message. Right. It is a unifying message. And I used to have the goal many years ago of uplifting the conspiracy culture with this show because I didn't like Alex Jones very much, but I didn't think he was necessarily wrong about a lot of the stuff he was screaming about. And I would go to conspiracy conferences and I'd be the only person in their mid twenties there. And I'd see a lot of people walking around the least healthy people I've seen the most socially awkward or, or socially unaware. And there's this motif that going down rabbit holes drives you nuts and drives you into paranoia. And I really wanted to flip that and be like, actually, no, I'm going to try to prove that this worldview serves people well and, and can make your life better because knowledge is supposed to be power. So if you have more knowledge about what's going on in the world, it doesn't have to drive you to paranoia. It can help you to navigate reality a little better, get a better, uh, clear understanding of the game that's being played and where you do have a fair shot at making it for yourself. And you probably do need to find a way to make an income without having a boss at some corporation. And you can pivot towards different things and use your skills in different ways than serving the system. And that was, you know, kind of the goal. So I really think when you say we need to tell a better story, I mean, that resonates with me quite a bit. I mean, that's the goal. Not always the best at it, but trying here. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Man, well, this has just been so insightful. I definitely want to keep hammering these things home as much as we can on this show because it's very important. And apparently this is what I've crafted as my contribution to the world. So I at least want it to try to use it wisely and highlight people like you. So wrenchinthegears.com is your blog. Are there any future plans or events people should know about to get more involved in? Maybe maybe one week out is a little soon, but anything further down the road? I don't have any, any specifics. I would just say if, if people are interested in the dandelion stuff to look at the dandelion manifesto on my blog, wrenching the gears. And if you want to send me some dandelions, I use some from the UK, from England and Scotland when I went up to New York to take on the empire. So that was great. I always like to get those and do your own thing. And, and if people are willing to send video of ceremony that you've done of engagements, I did just get one from the lobby of the Moonshot Project in Tokyo in Japan. It was a dad and his toddler who went there and just left some dandelions on the leather bench there in front of the virtual reality screens and said, it's not okay. We're not going to, I'm not going to let the transhumanists get my kid. And that was very moving. So we, we have agency. Keep in mind, I'm trying to figure out how to navigate this too. I'm taking a bit of a backseat lately, mm. but do your thing, be empowered. Don't let this put you down and please understand, like consume media <laughs> with discernment is what I'll say. And I say increasingly, I think it's about nanotech and frequency. At this stage of the game, that's where I'm at. And so if people are still angling on the bioweapon thing, I would say, like, to me, it feels much more like terrain. You know, it's not easy to go there. I get you. But I think that's the thing. Mm -hmm. We have to preserve natural life and we have to stay not programmed. And the programming that's happening is through this synth biotech. Well, cheers to that. And it is important to <laughs> remind each other that we are not alone. As you say, share what you're doing with people and use that tool of global communication and networking for something positive, perhaps. But 
Allison, you are the best, and I hope you know how much this work you're doing is needed and valued by a lot of people out there, me included. So thanks again, and keep fighting the good fight. All right. Thank you. You got it. Man, oh man, people. Allison McDowell. Such a special person. Doing everything she can to educate people on this complex web of control and everything they want to come with it. And one of the things I like most about Allison is when she says, look, this research is doable. I haven't been doing it my whole life. I don't have any special training. Because that's true. She's just dedicated and thinks this is important work to do. We kind of need all hands on deck. So sit down, start looking things up, find the connections, listen to their plans, organize it well, and start speaking out. Even if just to your friends and family. Easier said than done, I know that better than anyone, but the attempt should at least be made. I think many of us do end up going down rabbit holes here and there with research when we have questions, and we'll find the same organizations, the same schools and companies, doesn't really matter what it is. Pretty much anytime you look, more often than not, it's the very connections you would expect. I found a little something of interest myself the other day. I thought, well, who had Fauci's job before Fauci? So I just went to Wikipedia, and it looks like the director of the NIH was Richard M. Krauss. Funny enough, he trained at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis, and then, surprise, surprise, joined the Rockefeller Institute and Hospital and rose to the ranks of professor. And there it is. From there, he was appointed director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Disease. And as his Wikipedia page puts it, Krauss was among the first to perceive the, quote, return of microbes. Which sounds to me like we were getting away from germ theory a little bit until he reintroduced it. So he paved the way, and anyone interested in terrain theory and how we got phase-locked on microbes and viruses, thank this guy. And that's very surface level. You could go further, I'm sure. Start looking at founders and funding of every school that he went to. Look at other family members. And this stuff just starts unfolding right before your eyes. I do this every so often, confirm my own suspicions, and then forget about it. But anyone could do this and put together a tight 30-minute presentation and deliver it to the world. I saw another pretty interesting example of these ties that bind in the Secret Sun Facebook group. One of the few groups I still check in on. And if I'm going to bring this up, I wanted to go back and find it and then give credit to Christine Hines for making me aware that propaganda master Edward Bernays's great-nephew is the co-founder and former CEO of Netflix. I find that to be pretty damn amazing. I also didn't know that Edward Bernays was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. I'd probably heard that before, but again, I forget these things. So Sigmund Freud to Edward Bernays to Mark Bernays Randolph, and how about that? Paying tribute right there in his middle name. Think about the level of influence here in just a single string of people. One little branch on the big conspiratorial family tree, you know? We know Netflix is completely captured, but I still think in the back of our heads, a lot of us see Netflix as this success story of going from DVD to streaming. 
And then once they were successful, sure, they were captured along the way. But look, it was always going to be Netflix, just like it was always going to be Google and Facebook and all the rest of it. You're supposed to believe that the free market is in play here, but it isn't. Now, Reddit might have actually started genuinely because Aaron Schwartz was found hanged in his apartment a week before being put on trial for stealing scholarly articles from the internet, whatever kind of charge that is, but clearly they had it in for him. And now Reddit is as compromised as they come. But I'm getting pretty off track here. The point is that all this is hidden in plain sight, and if people get beyond what's thrown at them all day and seek instead of consume, it gets a lot more obvious. People absorb the propaganda delivered to them with no effort, and they consider themselves educated and informed. No, that comes from doing your own objective digging. The mainstream platforms are vehicles of propaganda, so just absorbing that doesn't make you informed. Don't give yourself a pat on the back because you watch four hours of CNN a day. Don't be proud of yourself because you check in on Rachel Maddow's podcast to see what's going on in the world. Ugh. But, you know, I also really like the framework and terms that Allison uses. Empire, colonization. This is smart. Eugenics is not just something in the past. For people who heard that joint session episode, I read an article that the state of California was paying out people who were sterilized against their will in a eugenics campaign that went from 1909 to 1979. And through a loophole where they just continued doing it in prisons, it went on into the 2000s. But it's gone now, right? It's safe. The big bad Nazis were brought to trial and no one ever had a eugenics thought again. The elite watch people die all the time of lack of health care, of poverty, lack of food, and they don't give a fuck. But when it comes to the vaccine, they very much care about your health and wellness and just are doing it out of the kindness of their heart. The cognitive dissonance is pretty insane at this point, isn't it? But how many people involved in this eugenics campaign in California, and as they say in the article, I think 20 or 30 other states, how many of these people who are doing this without any accountability up to 1979 are still involved in positions of power in these major institutions? Probably plenty. But first, they colonized and brutally wiped out undesirables under the guise of Christianity, then under the guise of democracy, now it's all under the guise of technology. We have to bring the poor indigenous people's cell phones and cryptocurrency and bank the unbanked. It's always about bringing the people something that isn't food, water, opportunity, or shelter. Which reminds me of another great tweet that I had posted from someone named Omar Imran. But he said, If Akon can provide solar power for 600 million Africans in a year... What have all these charities been doing for the last 30 decades? It's such a good point, and honestly, it was the most popular thing I posted on Instagram in a long time. Now, I don't care about social media, and I use Instagram the least, but it is where the majority of my real-world friends and family get exposure to THC and my general worldview. So, sometimes I post these screenshots of really well-made points. And I can tell the ones about the vaccine and COVID directly don't get much traction. 
fine. But when I see people who trust the whole mainstream COVID and COVID shot paradigm liking this post about Akon and the corruption of charities, in my mind, you're only one degree away. It's like it's the gateway drug to the bigger picture of corruption. It's kind of funny to be this semi-public figure, but when I post things like that, I have about 50 specific people in mind that I want to read it. And I don't want to have the conversation directly, plus it's probably better for the gears of their mind to start working in a low-pressure, private situation anyway. And right now, I can't get out of my head the fact that it took me 10 years to stumble on the wordplay of THC being a gateway drug to how the world really works. What is wrong with me? (laughs) Obviously, the red pill analogy is done to death, but there is definitely something in there for THC in that term gateway drug. What kind of coffee did I have this morning? Because the synapses are firing at full steam. (laughs) I'm in the groove now, but that is the show. I hope you heard the full interview as a Plus member. If not, isn't it about time? We throw $8 at all kinds of things and people that provide a lot less to you than THC, right? I just select the guests and ask the questions, so it's not just about me. But how many hours of this show have you consumed for free with no ad breaks? Pretty important and interesting things, paradigm shifting in some cases, and I can't get you to toss me $8 to continue the journey? You don't have to be a member forever. Just try me out. If you don't want to put yourself out there publicly, but you consider these ideas important, well then you can consider your contribution to THC Plus doing something. It isn't really, but if that's what it takes, then think of it that way. Plus, you get twice as much content. People think they're satisfied with the free show, but you are missing just as much great stuff as you're getting. Think about that. Today, we added a lot to the stack. Things like cryptocurrency weirdness and industry plotting, triggering the singularity, why it's important to understand nanoelectronics, why Texas and Florida are traps, The whole concept of telling the better story and taking control of that narrative and how it doesn't take everyone. The metaphysics of energy, intention, and ritual. Optogenetics, using light to control the brain. Where we see these pilot programs around the world. And all kinds of really interesting stuff that you would want to know. (laughs) And if you value a particular standout guest, it's important to support them too. I know it gets to be a lot, but we are David against Goliath here in a lot of ways. We don't have the family or institutional connections to make sure we rise above everyone else in our industry like a Google or a Netflix. Plus, with me having this baby on the way, the biggest concern to me is an internet blackout or energy grid false flag ransomware thing. We know they were doing drills before and on 9-11, They ran simulations of a pandemic before COVID, and the World Economic Forum is now giving a lot of lip service to the vulnerability of the grid and what Klaus Schwab calls a cyber pandemic. So I'm trying to use the information that I have, and I worry about how that false flag is going to be navigated. So please sign up for Plus now so that I have a little extra cushion to get us through something that I do suspect is coming. 
Which I should also say, if you have a talent for technology and cybersecurity and the sort of skills I would need in the very specific situation of the website going down and payment processors halting THC payments and the need to go a bit more guerrilla style to stay in business, reach out to me now so that we can get a little bit ahead of this thing. I've got a good team who is working to improve the overall experience. For example, I guess I should also announce that if you are subscribed to the Plus feed, it now goes back to contain everything that I've done. You get the full free archive in your Plus feed. It's pretty great. I didn't have that before. Having a premium paid feed does allow us some added flexibility because we're not working with Spotify or Apple in that feed where they do have size limits. Just another plus perk, but what I'm saying is I'm not really gonna be doing anything but gathering some contacts right now, but hit me up at thehiresidechats at gmail.com and I'll save the information of anyone who might be able to help in that situation. I really need to convert to Proton Mail, but it just seems like a huge undertaking. See, I'm a hypocrite too, but anyway, I am asking the free listeners to help contribute before any of this stuff happens. And I have to compensate people who help me in building out a more robust and less vulnerable system. If this show has brought you any sort of value, I hope you'll live by the sort of principles that we try to promote here and contribute rather than just consume. And that's my pitch. I am amazingly lucky to be here and have access to such amazing guests. Huge thanks to Allison. Let her know you appreciate the work. It's not easy. It gets tiring. And we all need encouragement in these troubled times. Wrenchinthegears.com Her presentations are some of the best things that I can think of to share with those friends and family that just don't see it this way yet. I know we're all fighting our own battles, but good tools make that easier. I love you guys. I'm getting out of here. I've done my part. Your move, biosurveillance bastards, digitally colonizing criminals and architects of this technocratic tyranny. Your fucking Sometimes when I get down, I eat a bunch of corporate junk. Process stuff that makes you fat. Yeah, it's a weak and sickly people making industry. Worse.